Well, everything we do, we based on IRS guidelines. So it's pretty clear within the IRS guidelines as far as what are the components that that can be depreciated for how many years. Utilize that information so that study that we provide align correctly with what the IRS guidelines are. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Hope you're doing well. Today, we're going to be actually revisiting a very, very important topic that we had discussed on episode 20 with Eric Oliver about cost segregation. A lot of you guys have come and talked to me personally through scheduling a call or through my email asking more questions about it. So I thought, you know what, as a refresher, we'll bring Mark Gross, who is another provider from CSSI, the company name. Well, some of the topics that we'll talk about today may be repeated, but we want to make sure we set the right stage. But then Mark's an expert. He speaks a lot of conferences. He just came back from one, that amazing conference that one of my mentors puts together, Hunter Thompson. So Mark, with further ado, thank you for coming on. I know you just came back from travels and your schedule's crazy, and you had four inches of snow last night. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, thanks. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm looking forward to this uh, having this conversation. Now, thank you, thank you. And you're calling us from Chicago, correct? That's right. Awesome. Mark, give our audience a little bit of background about you, right? And then we'll go sure. into your migration story, kind of like how you got started, so give a very high level view of where you are right now and what kind of services do you offer? And then we'll go from there. Sure. First of all, I've been with uh, CSSI for about 11 years and we've been doing cost segregation studies for 20 years and we're the largest provider in the country. But prior to that, I've been involved in primarily management of different companies. And I was in manufacturing for a number of years. Uh, one of the companies that I worked for we had one facility I worked at, we had over 1 million square feet mm-hmm. of space. That so was a pretty good size uh, company. We uh, manufactured office furniture. And I oversaw a lot of the production, inventory control, purchasing and traffic and all those type of activities. So my background has been primarily overseeing operations. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm assuming you have a lot of different industry experience, which is great. Now let's talk about your migration story, right? Kind of like you took a different path along the way about 11 years ago or 12 years ago when you made that call, maybe sooner, maybe earlier than that, who knows. But help us understand that journey of what happened at that moment. What was going through your mind? Why did you choose to join a cost segregation firm, which is less operational? And maybe it is, maybe I don't understand the nuances of it. So help us understand that decision process. Sure. I was in, involved with commercial real estate actually in, uh, in loan brokerage. Mm-hmm. So I was helping people underwrite loans and working with, uh, with agency loans with Freddie and Fannie and SBA 504-7A, USDA, CUSOs, uh, credit union service organizations, and, and a bunch of others. And I worked on that for a while. And then as a result of doing that, I came across clients that were utilizing cost segregation and making significant, uh, having significant, significant savings on their IRS taxes. So I became very intrigued with that and uh, searched out this, this company and 
I went to some of their conferences and I met with the president and a lot of their management. And I, I just really felt strongly that I was akin to their mission statement, not only being ethical, but also uh, their objective to be able to help people uh, save money. So I was just very in, in tune and in step with their corporate policy. That's awesome. So did you have a tax problem that you were trying to address personally that you got intrigued with cost segregation? Like, What was the reason for you joining them versus using them as a provider? No, I did not personally have an issue with that, but I just saw some of my clients being able to utilize this and seeing what a benefit it was. And I thought, this is awesome. I, I want to be part of it. Uh, and then did you jump fully into it or were you doing, were you still underwriting loans at that time when you decided to switch? I was doing both because I'm in the commercial real estate space. I still occasionally come across clients who will need help with that. I'm able to to help them with that because I'm well versed in knowing how to, how to underwrite loans and be able to seek out providers for them. But that's not, when you say you still at that time or even now in the current scenario, you still do do few of the loan underwriting vast majority of my time is with cost segregation but i don't actively seek out the loan brokerage but if a client will approach me or if i see that they're needing help with something right. i'm able to assist them and want to help them out all right so on that note then thank you for sharing that story it always helps to have the right context before we jump into the specifics you have used the word cost segregation probably 20 times already and i know it's a common nature to you and we've all talked about loan and writing commercial, just all of that good stuff. So we'll harp on the specific term cost segregation, which is a subject of this podcast anyways. So help us in your terms, what cost segregation means to you. And then we'll go from there on what the tax benefits and everything else is. Sure. Well, when somebody acquires a property, what their CPA will do is take a look at the purchase price and exclude the land value to come up with the cost basis for the property. So let's say it's it's 1.2 million and the land is 200,000, then they would take that $1 million. And if it's a residential property, you would do a straight line depreciation for 27 and a half years. Mm -hmm. For other property types, it's going to be for 39 years. So that's what straight line depreciation is. What cost segregation is, is an alternative method that's in the IRS tax code. So it's not something we made up. And what the alternative method is to take a look at that property and identify what are the pieces and parts of that that can be depreciated faster. For instance, you're going to have carpeting. Is carpeting going to last 27 and a half years or 39 years? Hopefully no. not. That's going to be a nasty carpet. <laughs> yeah, right. So so that is that is considered to be like five-year property and uh, molding and, and things of that nature. And then there's other items, let's say, such as a, a parking lot that would be considered to be 15-year property. Um, so what, we do, what our studies do is we will do an on-site visit. We'll take hundreds of photographs and we will... Our engineers will take weeks to be able to analyze all the information on that property and identify what are the pieces and parts of that property that can be depreciated faster. Let me just rephrase that. And I understand cost segregation very well. I'm just trying to K through 12 for my audience to make sure that they're all following us, right? So I think one of the biggest reasons, the impetus 
for doing cost segregation is because a straight line method, 27 and a half years or 39 years or 37 years, whatever their time frame is, it doesn't necessarily characterize the life of every single item that's involved in your house, right? Which is your carpet, your drywalls, other things like that. So the, the reason why you do cost segregation is because everything in your house may have a different lifespan. Is that a characterization? Yeah, that's correct. And, and one thing to keep in mind also is that there's still going to be some portions of the property that will still be, need to be straight line appreciated. Correct. You're going to have your structural components such as your brick and facade and things of that nature, which will still have the straight line through the length of the property. Perfect. I think you probably know where I'm going next with this is like my HVAC has 15 years, but my carpet may only have four years. So how do we make that determination of how deep the segregation happens? Well, everything we do, we do it based on IRS guidelines. So it's pretty clear within the IRS guidelines as far as what are the components that, that can be depreciated for how many years. So we, we utilize that information so that study that we provide will align correctly with what the IRS guidelines are. Okay. So there are three or four different categories, some five years, some seven years, some other years, right? So IRS tells you a carpet can be depreciated in X number of years, a nail can be depreciated in Y number of years. So you basically componentize. I can't say that word. You break the house into multiple components and you have a life of each component as defined by IRS and use that as a guideline to figure out what can be depreciated when. Is that fair? That's correct. And, and then there's another component to that, which is bonus depreciation. And I don't know whether you want to get into that now. Yeah, let's or, let's or wait later. that for a second. But again, that's just, that's a supercharges everything, right? So yeah. let's just say cost segregation in itself, right? So how does that affect my taxes? So I have, and we'll take an example. I have a million dollar property and we'll do an equal split, 500K in land and 500K in, uh, in a building, right? So just keep the example very simple. And we'll do, again, oversimplification of everything. So we'll do 20%, 20%, 20%, and the remaining in the straight line. So essentially 100K in the first year, 100K in the second year, the second category of depreciation, 100K in the last category, and then remaining 200K as a straight line. Just kind of like conceptually, if you can stay with me on that one. So what happens on taxes? Why is it different? Well, what happens is when you look, you look at your P&L, your profit and loss statement, you're going to have income mm -hmm. and you're going to have to pay taxes on that income, depending upon what your tax rate is. Sure. So there's also a line item on the profit and loss statement, which is depreciation, mm -hmm. which is a non-cash expense. It's not actually paying for it out of your pocket, but let's say you have $100,000 in income, you have to pay taxes on that. But what if our study creates an additional $100,000 in appreciation? Instead right. of paying taxes, you pay zero. Perfect, perfect. So let me again, K through 12 it. So what we're saying is, in a traditional or most commonly used, and I think we'll, we'll go into one more thing, which is most commonly used, but incorrect way of depreciating it straight line method. So the most common way of depreciating is straight line method at 27 and a half years. If that depreciation gave you $50 of depreciation per year, hypothetically making up that number, when you're doing cost segregation, that $50,000 could become $200,000 or 150 or 80, whatever that number is, it's going to be higher than 50. So the insight we're drawing is as a real estate investors or as rental property owners, 
what we want to do is we are trying to use this asset class to minimize our taxes that are owed to us within the purview of IRS. I mean, there's non-legal ways too. This is not the podcast for that. So we'll stick with the legal ways, right? So what we're trying to now do is how can we even make it a better tax saving mechanism for us? And that's really where the cost segregation plays a role. So it improves the amount of depreciation you get in year one and following years because we're bringing forward some of the depreciation. Correct or wrong? Yes, and there's also the, the side benefit of that. We work with savvy investors with, let's say, you know, 100000 or $1 million, whatever the case is that they save. They don't put that in the bank and get 1% or 2% mm-hmm. on it. They don't mm-hmm. stick it under the mattress. Right. They reinvest that money. They'll buy another property, and they'll get double-digit returns on that. So it's right. not only the advantage of reducing your taxes, but also the leverage you're able to do, go out there and buy another properties and, and create more wealth. Yeah, you're basically partnering with the government and the government is feeding your investments, right? So you're not avoiding taxes. I want to be careful with that. You're not avoiding taxes. You're becoming tax efficient. Because Correct. I think the next question, I know you're not a tax guy, so we're dealing depreciation, so you'll understand that. The next question, I'm sure you have a point of view on that, is depreciation recapture. And that's an important perspective because you're not evading taxes, you're not avoiding taxes, you're deferring taxes. So help us understand that. Sure. That's a great question. And that's one that we actually have in our questionnaire, which is a pre-qualifying question. And that is, how long are you planning on holding your property? And the question is, are you planning on holding it for five years or longer? Our suggestion is that if you are planning on flipping it within a year or two, it doesn't make sense to do cost segregation because of the recaptured tax. But if you're planning on keeping it for three to five years or longer, depending upon your situation, it's probably advantageous to do it because the net present value of what you're going to get with that money and the return on that is going to far outweigh whatever recapture tax you might have after that many years. Right. What's the typical amount of cost saving you see, the tax savings you see? I know you're not, you don't have access to the tax returns, but when you're projecting it, what is the typical, so if somebody buys a property, we'll use a million dollar for a rough number right now, a million dollar property where the land value is, let's say, 20% of that, 200K, and everything else is in the building, which is 800K, how much tax saving can somebody see in there, in that scenario? It's probably in, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or something like that. One thing to keep in mind is that it is going to vary somewhat depending on your property type. Because let's say you have a, it's not based on square footage or even dollar amount. Let's say you have an industrial building, mm-hmm. which is a warehouse distribution, manufacturing, something like that. Those properties typically have an 80-20 split with the 20% office and 80% in the other industrial part. And the industrial part it, per square footage and per dollar amount is going to have less because there's less componentry. Right in that type of a property, as opposed to, let's say, like a medical facility or a multifamily or things of that nature. So that's why we provide a free preliminary analysis where we ask information about the property so that the uh, client can take a look at a very conservative estimate of what their anticipated savings are going to be and the cost of the study so they can then make an informed decision as to what's the best course of action for them. That's a very generous offer, and we'll talk more about that towards the end. 
So going back to the cost segregation topic really quick, right? So I think let's talk about most people that I've talked to, unfortunately, especially the uninitiated ones, they think that cost segregation is the same as bonus depreciation. I know you were going that route initially. So from your perspective, from a provider perspective, again, help our audience understand what is bonus depreciation, and then we'll connect the dots with how bonus depreciation uses depreciation, cost segregation, and supercharges your tax minimization. Yeah, I like your terminology about supercharging. I sometimes use the analogy if it's putting cost segregation on steroids. It's, it's a similar go. analogy. Yeah. yeah. But um, we've been doing this for 20 years, even before there was bonus depreciation for new acquisitions. That came about as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 2017. And what that allows uh, owners when they acquire a property to be able to, through our studies, be able to identify anything with a less than 20-year life. And you can depreciate, that was up until last year, 2022, uh, 100% in the first year of acquisition. So rather than, let's say, the uh, one we were talking about earlier was the carpeting, being able to depreciate that in five years, you're able to depreciate that 100% the first year. The parking lot, which was 15-year property, you're able to depreciate that 100% in the first year of acquisition. So that's what it was. There's going to be a phase out here, but that's what it was as of last year. Perfect. Again, let's simplify that, right? So I think what we're basically saying is you're borrowing from future depreciation and bringing it forward. Let's get into the insight of that. Why is that important? And the reason, the reason it's important is because the exact stuff you had mentioned before is we're always looking at not tax saving, but using the money that we were going to give to IRS to generate extra returns, double-digit returns, because we'll end up eventually paying the taxes, right? It's not a tax evasion scheme. Uh, we'll eventually end up paying the taxes. So it's actually in best interest of the IRS to give you the money back so you can actually invest it and double, triple, quadruple your money so that when, you, when the time comes for tax payment, they're collecting taxes on a higher amount, right? So I want to set that stage that this is not a evasion technique, right? So for those who feel very patriotic paying taxes, I want to make sure that they understand that. So yeah, we're not the, doing... the government wants to incentivize people who are investing right. in, in real estate, and this is one of the ways they do it. Exactly, exactly. So what we're now doing is we're borrowing from future and we're bringing it forward Actually, we're not borrowing it. We're taking it away from future. We're not borrowing it because we don't give it back. We're taking away from the future and bringing everything in year one, anything that has a life value of less than 20 years. Correct? Correct. So what happens in, yes, in year two, year three, year four, you may get lesser depreciation, but the goal of depreciation is not to keep it on forever. The goal of the depreciation is the year you acquire it, what can you do to get some money back to reinvest in other deals? right? That's really where Correct. the bonus depreciation gets very, very powerful because cost segregation in itself is amazing. But when now when you borrow, when you layer on top of it, you're basically saying over 80, 70 to 80 percent, I'm making up this number, so tell me, correct me, Mark, if I'm wrong or not, over 70 to 80 percent of depreciation is front-loaded in year one. So at a 40 percent tax bracket, that's an amazing amount of tax savings, but it's not savings. Tax that is given back to you so that you can reinvest and grow your wealth even further. That's correct. That's a good way of putting it. All right. Perfect. That's good. I think I've been talking about cost segregation guys a lot, which I have. Now, you mentioned one thing, Mark, is about different property types, right? 
There is a misnomer, misnomer, and it existed in my head as well, full transparency, about five, seven years ago before I got exposed to the concept of cost segregation, that cost segregation can only be done for commercial properties. Give us your thoughts on that. Sure. We do all property types, including single-family homes that can be for short-term or long-term rentals, Airbnb-type properties. So it's not just commercial properties, it's residential properties as well. You can't do your primary residence that you live in, but if you mm-hmm. have a single-family home that you're using for investment purposes, it's perfectly fine to do a uh, cost segregation. In fact, I just uh, finished up four projects, uh, short-term rentals in Hawaii. In Hawaii? Did you have to go there? No. Oh, darn it. Oh, my. Next time, if you do Hawaii, make sure you take me with you. I'll come for free. Uh, you just cover my accommodation. I'll help you. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not the best use of my time. but uh, I can imagine. If, if uh, projects need to be done in, in the Chicagoland area, and, and if I have the time, I'll go ahead and do it, especially if there's time urgency and needs to get, get yeah. completed. But uh, I do them all over the country. I probably do more in Texas than any other state, but uh, all over, all property. No, that's helpful. So help us understand one thing, right? So does the property have to be a certain size, certain dollar amount? At what point should folks start looking? Because they may have bought a property for $200,000, right? And that property may now be a million dollars, but when they bought it, it was only $200,000, So how do you determine, is my property, my rental property, a good candidate for cost segregation? Sure. Great question. Well, first of all, it's not dependent upon what the value is, current value. That's immaterial. It's based on what your acquisition cost was. Mm -hmm. That's what it's based on. So it's a pretty low threshold. What I typically like to say is anything which is $250,000 or greater excluding the land value because you can't depreciate the land right and for most parts of the country that's not going to be an issue but in some rural tertiary markets you might have some properties which will be less than that so it's a pretty low threshold got it so i'll give you a hypothetical example let's say i have a property that i bought for myself a condo for four hundred thousand dollars in 2010 and now we're talking 2023 in 2023 i'm converting that into a rental property because i have outgrown that space and I need to move into uh, some of the city or state or whatever, whatever the example may be, right? Can I go back and do cost segregation for that deal, for that property or no? Yeah, when you convert it into an investment property, you can go ahead and then convert it into into an investment, yes. So can I still take advantage of bonus depreciation at that point or I will not be able to? Yeah, but depending upon the year in which it's done, one thing to be cognizant about bonus depreciation, which just as recap is anything which is a less than 20 year life, that sunset at 100% in 2022, it goes to 80% next year with subsequent reductions of 20% each year until it goes to zero. But we're all cognizant of the fact that this is very political in nature. And with Washington, D.C., who knows what's going to eventually happen. Mm -hmm. A lot of us feel that it's going to come back in some form down the road. So uh, basically, stay tuned. What we do is we don't try to project what the government's going to do. We just provide guidance based on whatever the current tax rules and regulations are. Correct. Correct. So so let's actually talk about that for a second, because I think we, we didn't go deeper into that. When we talk about bonus depreciation being phased out, 
So let's use an example. So let's say when it was not phased out, you were taking a $300,000, $200,000 worth of depreciation in year one, which was, let's say that number was true for 2022. In 2023, what would happen? Because I have a cost segregation, I was able to move most of my depreciation in 2022, and the number that I was given was $200,000. What would happen to that number in 2023, in 2024, in 2025? Well, bonus depreciation is for the first year. It's not for multiple years. No, let's say now I changed, if I acquired the same property for the same value in 2023, how would that phasing out of bonus depreciation impact the amount of depreciation I'm going to get. Okay, I understand. With 100% bonus depreciation, 100% of anything with a less than 20-year life could be depreciated in year one. In 2023, that gets reduced to 80%. So rather than being able to reduce 100% of what is in your five-year, 15-year category, you can only be able to do 80% of that amount. And then with subsequent reductions to 60 the following years, et cetera. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. So, so essentially what you're saying is if you had bought that property in 2022 and you were going to get $100,000 of de- depreciation benefit in 2023, everything remaining same, you would be only allowed to depreciate $80,000. And in 2024, right. if you were to acquire a similar property, everything else remaining equal, it would be 60,000, 40,000, 20,000, and eventually the bonus appreciation will disappear, at least as per the current IRS guidelines. Now, it may change eventually, who knows, but that's really what the phasing out means, correct? Correct. As far as the bonus appreciation, uh, keep in mind that wouldn't be your total depreciation because some of the property is still going to need to be straight line depreciated. So in addition to bonus, there will still be some aspects of that which will be depreciated 27 and a half or 39 years. Correct, correct. The reason I was going that direction, Mark, was I want to encourage my listeners, of course, do not make any decision based on depreciation and taxes. The investment has to make sense, right? And especially if you have acquired some properties and you have not done the bonus depreciation. Actually, you know what? Before I go that, I have a question for you because that triggered a question in my mind, which is a very important question. How far back can you go? So if I had acquired a property in 2015, can I do a cost segregation on that property now sitting in 2022 taxes? Yes. In fact, I do those type of properties on a regular basis. Of course, the further back you go, the less you're going to be able to take advantage of cost segregation because there's going to be more of it that's been straight line depreciated. So with each year, there is another hoop that you need to jump through, and that is called a 3115 form. And what that does is it it informs the IRS that I used to do straight line depreciation but now I'm doing cost segregation and it's pretty extensive process. And most CPAs will actually prefer that we do the analysis on that for them, but yeah. we leave that up to them and their seat and then their client. I know exactly how painful it is because in one year I did five of my properties and I had to go way back, way far back. I mean, one of them was 2003. So we had to do a lot of that analysis. Does it even make sense, right? So I'm quite familiar with that. So I think I wanted to make sure is that what people are saying is, it's not just going forward. You can actually go back and there's no penalty of going back. Now, I know you're not getting not a tax accountant. So what are the risks of going back? Are you filing the previous year taxes and kind of modifying them? Or are you actually taking this new depreciation on your older properties that you had acquired before in previous tax years, 
but you take the advantage of them in the current tax filing. How does that look? The advantage of doing the form 3115 is that you do not have to amend previous year's taxes. Perfect. That's what the form 3115 does. It identifies the fact that we used to do straight line. Now we're doing cost segregation. And that's why it's it's a little bit complex, but very beneficial to do. Another thing to consider, too, is let's say that you're not able to utilize the entire write-off. Let's say you only need $80,000 and we're giving you $100,000 appreciation. You can carry forward that extra amount indefinitely until it gets used up. Got it. Until you sell the property, until the sale of the property. Once the property is sold, that depreciation disappears, correct? Right. But I'm saying, let's say you, you used $80,000 in this That's year. And yeah. next year, you could use the additional $20,000. Right, 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 so, right, 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 right. Because some people say, well, I, I'm not able to use all that this year. Well, obviously, if, if it's going to take you 20 years to use it all up, that may not be a good decision. But right. but if it's if it's reasonable, it, it probably not makes sense. Okay, perfect, perfect. Mark, where do you see the most amount of challenges in the cost segregation, right? So actually, one, one more thing. When you go into cost segregation analysis and you're doing the site visits, what does the site visit look like? What it looks like is being able to go in and take a lot of exterior pictures, but then also interior pictures as well. And I frequently will get a question, especially in multifamily, maybe it's 100 units. The question is, do I need to go into every single unit? And the answer is no. We really need to go into each unit which is represented. So if you have some which are the same or a mirror image of each other, that are two bedroom, two bath, and another one, one bedroom, one bath. We just need to go in and take photographs of the ones which are representative. And then what we'll do, because we recognize the fact that the rest of those are going to be the same. So um, let's go deeper. Why do we need to take pictures? Well, we need to have the documentation, first of all. And then what our engineers do is they take weeks pouring over all that documentation including the appraisal, survey, blueprints, and, and the photographs are an int integral part of that because what they'll do is they'll even zoom in on what is the model of this uh, security camera. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it gets very detail-oriented, and right. they need to be able to identify all the pieces and parts within the property to be able to allocate costs to them. Got it. So I think we're, we're teasing the insights out of it so people know how to think about it. I mean, you cannot do cost segregation without a company like yours. So don't even try that. It's not allowed, but don't even try that. So you need someone like Mark on your team to get that done. But what we're basically saying is they're not ripping apart your home, right? When an engineer comes in, the site visit is pretty, pretty benign, right? You come in, take photographs in the next, depending upon the size of your property, within a few hours, usually it gets done. And that site, that those photograph and documentation actually has another purpose as well, Mark, right? The auditing. Could we talk a little bit about that? That how do you, how many of these studies get challenged by IRS, right? And what is your team's involvement in that process? And how scared should I be as somebody who did the cost segregation study that now IRS is asking me questions, is my study correct? Sure. Well, one thing that we do is we will defend the study at no cost in case a client ever gets audited. And as far as numbers are concerned, we've only had less than a couple dozen that we've needed to do that with. We have never had one study overturned. 
And we want to sleep well at night. We want our clients to sleep well at night, not have to be concerned about what would happen if there is an IRS audit, because one of those could cost us significant amount of money, many thousands of dollars to be able to right. go through that process. But that's not an, an issue for us because we are confident that we do everything by the book. It's not going to be a, a problem. And uh, that's why we offer it. And how much time does it take to do a cost segregation study? So if I have to engage you today and say, Mark, here's property X, one, two, three Main Street. I want you to come in and do the cost segregation study. Well, the first thing uh, we will do is we'll want to give you a free preliminary analysis mm -hmm. so that you can look at a very conservative estimate of the savings and then the cost of the study. Over 90% of the time, the actual uh, savings are going to be greater because we prefer to under-promise and over-deliver sure. on that. But once you identify that you want to move forward with it, 50% of our fee is due up front, and then it takes about six weeks in order to complete the study. The first step is going to be a site visit. And then the engineers are going to go through all the photographs and, and all the other documentation on the property to be, be able to provide the final report for the CPA. Got it. So it's really from the day we make it, one makes a decision, it's about six to seven weeks that you can give them the report with all the other information that they need to file taxes. Correct. Correct. So if you want to meet the March, the April 18th deadline, you don't have much time. So if you had a property that, you, that somebody bought last year or several years ago, and they need to get in touch with someone like you to basically help them understand, is it worth going to the effort and the expense of a cost segregation? Because it is an expensive study. It's not a dollar. It's more than a dollar. And it all depends upon, I'm not going to give price quotes for Mark. That's between you and Mark if you choose to engage Mark. But it's not, it's not insignificant. But the saving is tremendous, and you have to make sure you understand the cost-benefit analysis and make the decision for yourself. And that's where, Mark, what you're saying is your complimentary report that you give your clients is going to be able to help them make that decision. That's correct. And another thing to keep in mind as far as timing is we have a lot of clients that extend their taxes. That correct. Syndicators and others will want to file it by March, April, but there's a lot of others um, that run into every, all the all the time. So they will do that in September, October timeframe. So yeah. what that does is it allows them, even though they may have acquired a property in 2022, they can get the study done this coming summer and still have plenty of time to be able to do it with the return, rather the report to put into your return at the 11th hour, they need some time to be able to look at the information and be able to put it in your tax return. So we're running up against the clock in order to do that. However, a lot of my clients do extend their taxes into the fall. And if that's the case, there's still sufficient time to be able to get the study done through the summer for taxes. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very important decision that you need to make because if you have properties spread across the US, let's say you got seven single family homes that you have never cost segregated, and you want to engage Mark and his team to help you with that, I would encourage you engaging them sooner than later because uh, at least get the analysis done to see if it's worth moving forward because then you can map out what the timelines that need to be. Do you need to file extensions? There's a lot of dependencies beyond that decision. The sooner you make that decision, and given that the first report is complimentary, you may want to at least avail that to get a sense of would it help you or not, and there is really no strings attached. Mark, is that fair to say? Yes, it is. Yeah, there's no obligation. Uh, we like, really want people to be well-informed. Our objective is not to sell studies if it's not beneficial for our clients. And sometimes we'll run the numbers, and for whatever reason, they'll decide they don't want to move forward. 
but the majority of cases they do because they realize the benefit of it. Perfect. Well, Mark, I know we can talk about this topic a lot of time because I know every time I speak to uh, speak about cost segregation, there's something I learned that I didn't know. That's why I'm glad people like you yourself exist. So I don't have to know everything. I can just contact you to get my answers. Right. So with that note, let's just switch to the end of our show now. I want to be respectful of your time. So I do want to switch gears. So you, of course, had a very, very successful career and you'll continue to have a great success as well hopefully exceed what you've achieved so far. But if you were for a moment, go back in time, which was when you were 20 year old, which I know it was just a few years ago. Uh, so it may not be a far travel. What is the insight that you want to give to your 20 year old self, 15 year old, 20 year old self? So their path of migration and life becomes more intentional and something that they look forward to and hopefully architect them for themselves instead of being a victim of your circumstances? Sure, that's an awesome question. From a vocational standpoint, I think it's always important to be able to do something that you enjoy. I know for myself, it was getting involved in business, getting a business degree, and being able to utilize that in the corporate world. And I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that aspect of things. What's kind of different in today's day and age is that, especially with COVID, is that there's a lot more being done with remote working mm -hmm. and that you don't have to go into, depending upon what type of work you do, you may not necessarily have to go into the office on a regular basis. And I noticed that with a lot of people, especially some of the younger generation, they appreciate that aspect of things. And I think it, that wasn't something that was really, when I was that age, was able to avail myself of that. It could, because a lot of people are looking at what is the quality of life that I'm able to have for myself, not just to be able to achieve my objectives in the business world, financially and position and things of that nature, but also be able to have balance in your life, to be able to uh, spend time with your family and friends and other things that you do, recreational and things of that nature, and just to have that balance. Well, great, great insight, because I think that's one thing that's missing from everyone's life, balance, right? And whatever that means for everyone has a different definition of that, but try to figure out what that means and try to, I think what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is really try to make it more intentional rather than saying either balance doesn't exist or that I'll worry about it when I'm 50 because yeah. all of us know we may not get there. So let's work on it now. Yeah. <laughs> It is hard for me because I have a tendency to be a workaholic. I enjoy working whatever it is I'm doing, and I enjoy spending time with it. And uh, so it's always good to be reminded of that. Right. No, no, I think all of us suffer from that because that becomes our identity, unfortunately. And that's constant reminder is necessary. So, Mark, we're going to take actually the next question is a little bit higher perspective, right? So we talked about you. We talked about reflecting back on life. We're going to actually now reflect back from a different vantage point about if you were given the power, right, that you could direct humanity towards a migration path, what would that be for you? Like, where do you, where do you see the benefit? Which direction of migration do you see the benefit of humanity moving towards? My hope and desire may not necessarily reflect reality, but I'll share what my hope and desire is, is for people to live in harmony and peace with each other. And unfortunately, over the, the generations and the centuries, there's been time of wars and turmoil and things of that nature. And I really don't understand why people just can't get along. Yeah. And, uh, 
I won't name any of the specific ones, but I think we're all cognizant of issues that are going on around the world right now. And uh, it pains my heart to see that. I agree, right? I agree. I think mostly in perspective, of course, everything looks easier to look in perspective. A lot of these things are petty, right? A lot of things are driven because of some personal agenda. And I think that's really, but I know it's easier to say than do it um, because sometimes all of us get carried away. Doesn't make it right, but we do get carried away. So I think that's a hard one. But I really, really appreciate that because I think I understand, even in our homes, right? So even if we can't get into the humanity, at least if we can get that in, the, in our homes, that would be a good start. In our families, that would be a great start because you may not change, able to change the whole world, but hopefully all of us have the power and the influence to bring harmony in our homes. And if we can achieve that, to your point, right? So that would be a great start, I believe. And hopefully we can achieve the image that you have painted for us for the whole humanity. That would be exciting. Absolutely. Awesome. With that note, Mark, I really, really appreciate you getting on the call, getting on this Zoom session with us. One thing I do want to ask is, I know you have offered, you've been very generous in offering your help. Where can people get hold of you? Sure. Um, I can be reached uh, by phone by 630-329-9801 by email at markgross at costsegregationservices.com. And those are the best ways to contact me. Perfect. And I know that's Mark's personal cell phone because I've used it. So he's not giving you a phony one. So we'll include the contact information below. And again, Mark, thank you again for sharing your insights, your wealth of knowledge, and give a knack of simplifying things, saying it in a way that actually makes sense. So thank you again for sharing your insights. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.